Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. I think that uh, I want to do is to read through it first and then look at the principles from it as we go through. So uh, if you would turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3, we'll pray that God blesses his word and then we'll just go ahead and read it and then we'll start uh, looking at some specific applications and lessons for us. So Father, again, we thank you for your word today. God, I pray that you would speak to every person that's here Lord, whether it would be someone that is 16 or someone that is 60 or uh, anywhere over or under those things, Lord, um, we, we pray that you would speak to us. Father, we pray for the single person and the married person. Lord, for the, the child as well as the, the grandparent. God, we know that you have something for us here today. And Father, as we open up your word, we want to listen to what your Holy Spirit says to us. As we read your word, help us to see Jesus in, in the text, Lord realizing, Jesus, that you are all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And we're asking, God, that we would be able to not only listen and understand, but to apply the things that you would speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you would follow along with me, the title of the message this morning is Division of Labor. And uh, we're going to read in Nehemiah chapter 3, and uh, beginning... In verse 1, bear with me, because when you read through this, this is like the white pages. Anyone remember the white pages? Okay, there's a phone book, and then there's yellow pages. Those are ads. Those are fun, because there's display things and things to see. The white pages is just text, and it's just names and numbers, and that's what it's going to sound like uh, somewhat, but I really believe the Lord has something for us. So It says, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams. They hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Moreover, Jehoiada, the priest of Pasea, and Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melathiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon of Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Uh, next to him, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, uh, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, uh, Raphathiah, um, the son of Hur, leader of the half-district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumph made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, made repairs. Malkajiah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, as well as the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halahesh, leader of the half-district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Hanum and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Okay, we are going to pause there. Okay, we're going to drink some water and take a nap, and then we'll uh, come back and we'll finish the rest. I wanted to read that, first of all, just in one section, 
to point something out. They are a, a list of names, uh, a lot of different people. And I was thinking, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Um, every jot, every tittle, every letter, every stroke of a pen, the Holy Spirit inspired. Which means that God wanted this in His Word. This is not something where one sentence says, they built the wall. It doesn't say there were a bunch of people together and they all built. It actually lists the names. And it goes person by person, the houses, the areas, the sections. And I really believe for us this morning that the Lord is showing us that He doesn't just see us as a corporate body, as a church. He sees you individually and me individually as well. So yes, it is a group of people, but He actually names these people and the areas where they built. And one thing that really encourages me about that is that God is a God that sees the number of hairs on our head, as it says um, in in His Word. Uh, He knows our thoughts. He knows our, our words before we speak them. He's intimately acquainted with our ways. So this morning, there's no one here that God cannot relate to. See, because he made you, and he knows your thoughts, and he knows what you're going through. There's no one here that maybe you feel like, well, I don't know where I belong. I don't know where I fit in. I'm just a, a name. And when I see these names, I realize I don't, I don't know these guys, but God knows them. There was something specific that God wanted and, and this record that Nehemiah has, this is his journal. This is uh, Nehemiah's memoirs. And what this tells me is that Nehemiah also noticed these people that were building. And I want to share with you that as a pastor, um, sometimes the face or the work of a ministry can be only a few people. Like you, you see that. And, and sometimes people say, oh, that's your church. And I, I always get uncomfortable with that. I know what they mean by that. Um, but it's not my church, you know, it's Jesus's church. Now, it is my church as far as this is the church I belong to. I pastor this church, and it's your church if you uh, are are part of the fellowship. And yet, what I realize is that all of us are essential for the work of the ministry. And sometimes we have this misconception that some people aren't necessary. Well, I read those names, and then I wanted to show you this picture. Um, In... 480 BC, there was a a group of soldiers, um, Grecian warriors, they were called Spartans. And it's actually a true story. If you've heard of the movie 300, maybe you thought that was fiction. Um, A friend of mine, Jim Delore, actually told me about this years and years ago. He's reading this historical book. He's like, Matt, you've got to study the Battle of Thermopylae. Like, what? The Battle of Thermopylae, these soldiers, they were just beasts. They, they take this beach, and uh, they, they don't let these, you know, the Persian army is coming. And if you look at historical records, there's like a million Persian soldiers that are coming. And, and they say anywhere between 300,000 to a million, but there's only 7,000 soldiers. And then once they get surrounded, he lets all the other people go, and 300 Spartans they take this narrow patch of land, and they realize they have ocean on one side, they have a cliff on the other side, and we don't have to fight all million at once. We just have to hold this ground. And if we get in this thing called a phalanx, and a phalanx is a battle formation, as you see there, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, the only surface that anyone is going to run into is something that's sharp or hard. You know, there's either a shield or a spear. And with that, they held their ground in the Battle of Thermopylae in this small little crevice because they realize that anyone that comes in has to come through us. 
And this morning, the reason why I wanted to share that as the backdrop to this chapter in Nehemiah is this. In Ezekiel 22.30, God speaking says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. God is looking for builders. God is looking for people that just run up. And, and imagine this picture here. One of these soldiers goes down and there's a gap. And as soon as there's a gap, the next soldier runs and takes his place. So there's never a gap within that wall. And God is looking for builders and he's looking for people to repair gaps. And when I look at the body of Christ today, when I look at my life, when I look at the church, I see gaps. I see places where we need to fill. I see areas where there's needs. I look at my family, I realize there's gaps. And God has called me, he's called you to partner with him in ministry to repair the gap, to say, God, send me. Because when it says, I look for someone to rebuild the wall or to build a wall and stand in the gap, God speaking, he said, I found no one. And Nehemiah responds to that call because Ezekiel was a prophet before Nehemiah. See, all of this time that Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer, all of this time that years go by and he's, he's living away from Jerusalem and then he hears about Jerusalem, I believe that he's praying, God, send me. I believe that he's praying, God, use me. I believe that he's praying, God, show me where I could fill a gap. Show me where I could step into that place. And you know what? This morning, all of these names mean something because God is looking at us and he's saying, who's willing to step into a gap? Who's willing to build? Who's willing to say, God, show me where there's a need and I want to fill that need. Now, there are some specific things that we are going to look at this morning. First of all, in Jerusalem, there are seven areas around Jerusalem that are focused on. And each one of these areas uh, is around a gate. So if you look at the, the slide here, I know that uh, the print is kind of small to be able to see it, but you see two different outlines. You see one that um, looks almost like the, the state of Florida. That is the wall during Nehemiah's time. The greater wall is what the wall eventually became. But when Nehemiah was building this wall or rebuilding the wall, so to, um, I should say, when you look around the wall, you see that there's different gates. There's a sheep gate. There's a, a east gate, a horse gate. There's an old gate, a fish gate, a fountain gate, a dung gate, a valley gate. And these are seven uh, boroughs, their neighborhoods, their areas around the city. And when I think of, um, you know, when Pastor Bill was just talking about Santa Cruz County and how um, it served the bay, I think about areas and I think about um, boroughs. And I think about Aptos and Capitola and Soquel and Santa Cruz and Ben Loman and Scotts Valley and Felton. I, I look at, in a sense, imagine that God wants to do a work here. And imagine that God is looking for people that say, hey, there's a gap in my borough. There's a gap in my city. There's a gap in my neighborhood. There's a need to reach people where I live and where I am. And so God is looking for people by name to say, he, uh, here I am, send me. There are 38 individuals that are listed by name. And I find it interesting that there's 42 groups of people that are listed. So he lists 38 individuals, but there's 42 groups. So we can't only see it as an individual thing. We have to realize that we're part of something bigger than us. Church is the same way. 
When we think about a, a church, there's administration and teachers and worship leaders and children's ministry and deacons and youth and college and married couples and finances and all these different parts that, that make up a church. And so this morning, I really believe that there are some lessons of life and ministry that are going to come specifically from this section of scripture that we are looking at. So we looked at chapter three, this first part, and I want to begin with where we should begin. In verse one, Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the what? The sheep gate. They consecrated it and they hung its doors. And I really believe that when it comes to rebuilding, we have to begin at the sheep gate. Now, let me explain contextually what the sheep gate was for them. The high priest, Eliashib, when the temple is rebuilt and they start sacrificing in the temple, um, the sheep are brought in, the sacrificial lambs are brought in through the sheep gate. And this sheep gate was a place, it's the only gate that is mentioned where there's no locks on it. All of the other gates, it mentions, you know, the locks that are built in, but this place, it, it's open. And when I think about this sheep gate, it's important to realize this. Jesus himself is that gate. Jesus himself is that door. And that's where it all begins. If I want to rebuild my life, I'm not going to run to Barnes and Noble and look at 10 steps to rebuild my life. I need to begin at the sheep gate. I need to understand who Jesus is. Because if I don't understand who Jesus is, then I'm building on a foundation other than Christ. And all of those foundations as we know, those foundations will be washed away. In fact, when we look at this sheep gate, first of all, it's sanctification. In the Old Testament, this is before Jesus came, the sacrificial system, um, when God set it up that through blood there would be remission of sin, they would bring a sheep, a goat, they would bring a dove, they would bring it to the priest, the priest would sacrifice that animal, and then they would burn it, and then they would, they would, that would be the offering to the Lord. But even in the Old Testament, they understood this, that the blood of bulls and goats was only representative of forgiveness. In fact, when you think about the word scapegoat, what is scapegoat? A scapegoat is putting the blame on someone else. And we get that because it's a biblical term in which they would place the hand on a goat and it would symbolically represent the transfer of sins onto an animal, and then the animal would be killed, um, and that would be like, well, the punishment has, has been done. But Jesus came, and remember that when John the Baptist proclaimed him, what did he call him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so if sanctification, which is becoming holy or um, becoming um, accepted or set apart, this, this holiness, first of all, comes from the blood of Christ. It's positional sanctification. Now, I know I'm throwing some words out there, um, but let me explain it this way. I'm a son. You know, my mom and dad had me, and I'm, I'm their son. I'm their kid. And growing up, I was always their son. Positionally, that was my position. I'm their son. But sometimes, practically, I wouldn't act like their son. See, there are times when I could be in rebellion, not respectful to my parents. There could be times that I don't listen to my parents or I'm not loving back to my parents. Positionally, I am still their son. Practically, I'm not acting like it. So when it comes to sanctification in the sheep gate, first of all, if I haven't been living right, I have to understand this. 
if I've never received Christ, that's the first step to rebuilding your life. It's understanding that Jesus came to die for my sins. That it's not just about a loving God who blanket statement loves everyone and, and that's how we get to heaven. That's a part of it. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There was a sacrifice that's involved. And if we miss the sacrifice, then we miss the gate. If we miss that sacrifice, we miss the way to get into that sheepfold. Let me explain it this way. Jesus said this in John chapter 10. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold um, by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought all of his own out, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. So let me explain this. Um, if you've been to Israel, uh, we had a time going towards uh, Bethlehem, and you look at the shepherds that are out there. They're still nomadic shepherds. It's, it's really an amazing thing to see. They're shepherds that would go out to different pasture lands. So imagine I have like 50 or 100 sheep or whatever, and I would, I would take them out to a good place to eat. It's a, a good pasture. But at night, there's predators around. You know, there's animals, and they could get lost. So we would bring them into this sheepfold, and usually the sheepfold was made by sticks and rocks and stones, and, and it's placed up as a pen. And then all of the, the sheep would be brought inside. But it wouldn't just be my flock. It would be like, you know, someone else's little flock and someone else's little flock. And all of our sheep would be intermingled that evening. And then in the morning, I would call my sheep, and they know my voice so well that only my sheep would follow me. And then the next shepherd would call out to his sheep, and only his sheep would follow him, and so on. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, the door to the sheep gate or to the sheep pen uh, many times would simply be one of the shepherds that would lie down in the middle of the opening to make sure that none of the sheep left and nothing got in. And Jesus laid down his life for us, and he said, I am the door. So all ministry, all rebuilding of a life, it all begins at the sheep gate. It all begins with relationship to Christ and understanding and realizing what he has done. That's where rebuilding starts. The next thing that happens is they begin to organize the work. Um, when we look at organizing the work, um, they each had a, a specific part. Uh, notice what it says in verse 3. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate and laid its beams and hung its doors with bolts and bars. And then, and then it goes on, and this is where the list of names just starts rattling. It just starts going, this, this work. But I want you to notice in verse 5, there's some, some commentary that Nehemiah adds to it. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Um, these are the guys that showed up with the suits and ties. You know, they, they showed up to a, a work site and everyone is working, they have shovels, and they have trowels, and they're building, and everyone's sweaty, and they're dirty. And these are the guys that show up to say, 
you know what, that looks good there, and uh, that, that looks good there, but they don't put their shoulders into the work. Now, I understand that there are different divisions of labor. Um, I don't expect uh, the president to do all of the same things that the other builders do, but we are all called to serve and be willing to put our shoulder to the work. I remember when I was uh, the principal of a school that um, I was, I was kind of going crazy when we started the school. Um, everything from cleaning up the classrooms to the budget to ordering curriculum to helping out within the classrooms. And I was, I was just kind of getting burned out. And I remember talking to another principal. Um, his name is Dave Rolfe. He's a pastor now down in Southern California. But Dave was the principal of the school at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And Dave told me something. He said, Matt, he said, one day, um, he said, I was out there and the basketball court, we had a, a backboard that had brackets around the pole and it started to slip down. And so I needed someone to lift it back up and then to tighten the bolts, but I couldn't find anyone. And so I got under it. I got a ladder. And I started lifting it up and, and he said it was really heavy and it was awkward. And then I was reaching out and I'm trying to do this and I'm sweating. And, and he said, so Chuck Smith walks by. And uh, he goes, hey, Dave, what, what are you doing? And he said, um, I'm just trying to fix this basketball court. And he said, oh, okay. He goes, I, I was just wondering, um, Dave, is there, is there anyone else that might be able to do that? And he goes, well, yeah, we, you know, there's some other guys that might be able to do this. And he said, Dave, is there anyone else that could be the principal of the school right now? And he said, um, no. <laughs> and he said, well, he said, maybe you should figure out if someone else could do that. And the reason why I share that is that Dave was willing to work. See, we need to be willing to work. And at the same time, understanding there are divisions of labor. And yet, what I see is everyone has a place. And you're going to see later on, even non-skilled craftsmen are working on the wall. But it was these nobles that felt like they were above the work. And we should never feel like we're above the work. What is it that you're not willing to do for the Lord? Uh, I remember one time, Dale Goddard, uh, um, he, he shared one time when at the nursery, he was joking with the ladies. He said, hey, ladies, you know, I'll serve anywhere in ministry. He goes, but I don't do diapers. And uh, the, the lady that was working looked at him and said, uh, Dale, let me ask you a question. She goes, what else won't you do for the Lord? And, you know, it kind of convicted him. It, it kind of showed him, like, there, there are lists that each of us have, right, for things that we won't do. I won't do that. I won't go there. And you know what's funny? How many of us can share the testimony of things that we said, I'll never do that, and God has you doing that, right? I mean, it's the very thing sometimes. And so now I just say, God, you know, I'll never serve you in Hawaii. I will never, I'm, I'm kidding, I don't, I don't really say that. But, um, but sometimes, like, it, it's the fear that we have of, of really leaning into it is sometimes, I believe, rooted in the fact that we're not really sure that God has the best plan for us. That's a trust issue. Because if I really understand that God loves me enough to send his son, would he ever put me in a place to do something that somehow, some way, was not only good for the kingdom of God, but was also good for me? See, hard situations sometimes that God allows us to be in, sometimes those situations teach us things. In Romans 8.28, obviously uh, many of you know that one. Some of you don't. But it says, uh, for God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that all things are good. But God causes all things to work together for good. 
So maybe you're in a hard situation and you're thinking, God, this isn't good. Maybe someone did something bad to you, but yet good can come of it if you turn it back to the Lord and say, God, use this in my life. See, patience, that's a work, right? God wants to do that work in our lives. And that means he's going to put you in a place to wait. Some of you are in waiting places right now and you hate it. You're like, you want to scream because you're waiting. And God's saying, well, I'm just trying to teach you patience. And in my mindset, I'm thinking, no, I just need to get that next thing done. And God's saying, no, you're right where I want you because this is where I could teach you some, some things about yourself. And so in organizing the work, um, it's important that everyone realizes we all have a place on the wall. Where's your place on the wall? What is, what is it that God has called you to? See, if we don't know what those things are and we don't, aren't looking for those things, then I really believe that so much of um, Christianity today in America, especially when it comes to young people, it's, it's boredom. And many times we get bored because we don't, we don't know our place on the wall. But when you're on the wall and you're doing what God's called you to do, not only do you see God use you, but he's going to put us in places where our faith needs to be exercised. When it comes to our place on the wall, read with me in verse 6. Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadiah, repaired the old gate. Okay, so they repaired the old gate. Notice what it says in verse 8. It goes on to say, next to him, uh, Uziel, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, um, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Now, think about goldsmiths as uh, K-jewelers and uh, perfumers as Bed Bath & Beyond or Body Works or whatever. You know, there's, there's a guy that, that he's, you know, imagine you're a construction foreman. You know, you're the general on the job and uh, you're all you. And the guy's, you know, the guy's just like spraying, you know, and like, oh, smell this. This is a great fragrance. And you're saying, okay, I want you to take this sledgehammer. I want you to break down this stone. I want you to, and, and so these, these, Guys, maybe this perfumer had pretty, uh, pretty soft hands. Maybe hasn't used a lot of tools. Uh, again, I'm, I'm stereotyping. I'm sorry. If you're a perfumer, you might be really handy. So um, anyhow, <laughs> they're building. But what I wanted to say is when it comes to our place on the wall, God gifts us and gives us talents and abilities to be used for his glory. So what are you good at? What are the things that you like to do? And you're thinking, well, that's just what I like to do. That's what I'm good at. Then if you like those things, and God created us to, for his good pleasure, it says in Ephesians that we are his workmanship. So God, we're thinking about the work we do. God's saying, you're the work that I'm doing. And it says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that he has prepared beforehand, which means there's some plans that God has to use us for. And in that giftedness, I'm putting this diagram up here, is that sometimes we have this, that first circle is called a, a, our comfort zone. Things that we're comfortable doing and we like doing and we're gifted at. For some of you, it is teaching kindergarten and preschool age kids. That's your comfort zone. You feel comfortable with those kids. Um, it's your gifted zone. You work well with them. As a teacher, um, both in, in a, as a pastor, but also as a, a teacher before in a public school, I feel like my gifted zone is teaching, but my comfort zone is not kindergartners. 
So I'm still in my gifted zone if I'm teaching, but I'm outside of my comfort zone. I, I've taught chapels, many chapels at the school that my, my kids grew up at, and they have different ages. There's like the kindergarten, first, second grade chapel, then there's a third through fifth grade chapel, then there's, there's a junior high chapel. The one that freaks me out is when they say, Matt, you're up for the kindergarten chapel. And that, that freaks me out. That is way outside of my comfort zone. It's the hardest group of people for me to deal with because they get bored so fast, you know, and then they're jumping off the walls. And then if you get them engaged and they start laughing, then you can't bring them back. And so like nothing stressed me out more than teaching the kindergartners. For other people, your, your outside of your comfort zone might be working with tools. Like, I just don't know how to work with, for some of you outside of your comfort zone is computers. And see, there's a gifted zone where if I'm teaching kindergartners, I'm still in my gifted zone, but I'm outside of my comfort zone. But let me tell you where I'm outside of my even gifted zone. Um, I'm outside of my gifted zone when it comes to computers. You know, when it comes to teaching technology or programming, that's, that's outside of my gifted zone. But the reason why I bring this up here is sometimes God calls us even outside of our gifted zone for a short time to fill a need. The perfumers, the goldsmiths did not regularly work on the walls, but there was a need to build the walls, and that was the most important thing at that time. See, sometimes when the need is right there, we could easily say, well, that's just not my job. I don't like doing that. Well, <laughs> someone has to do it, right? And, and when it comes to raising family, I mean, who likes to change diapers? Nobody likes to change. No one says, I love changing diapers. That's just like my calling. We do it because it stinks and there's a necessity and you have to change it. And it's the same way when it comes to ministry. Sometimes God will call us outside of our gifted zone to do things for a season. Now, we shouldn't spend the majority of our time outside of that giftedness because then we're almost going against the way that God has created us. Um, baseball fans, you know, growing up as a Dodger fan in L.A., do you guys remember a guy named Pedro Guerrero? Uh, Pedro Guerrero had a great bat. I think he hit 15 home runs in one month, and it was like a major league record at the time. He was terrible at, at catching the ball, and he played third base. And I remember when they had hit the ball to him, he's, he's sitting there and bam, it would hit him in the shoulder or, or it would like hop by him. And, and it was always like a scary thing whenever someone hit the ball to Pedro Guerrero. But the thing about Pedro Guerrero, when they asked Tommy Lasorda, the manager, like, why is Pedro Guerrero playing third base? You know what his answer was? Because I don't have anyone else to play third base. <laughs> See, sometimes you just got to play that position until someone comes along. But it's for a season. If you play that position too long, then you're going to get hurt, and, and uh, it's not going to go well. And I share that because when it comes to ministry, sometimes people only are willing to do the things that are easy. See, God calls us to do things that are hard. God calls us to do things that aren't comfortable. Sometimes God calls us to do things that are scary and even outside of our giftedness for a season, and we just need to be willing to say, God, whatever your plan is, and yes, I believe that the Lord primarily will have us within our gifted zone. And if you're not in that gifted zone, even when it comes to work, and if you get a job outside of your gifted zone and it's not comfortable and you don't like it, um, maybe you should pray about, Lord, putting me in somewhere else, you know, that, that is my gifted zone and where um, I feel like I'm doing something. And I understand providing, but um, the other thing is that when it comes to this division of the work, knowing your place on the wall, your gifted zone, 
the old gate. Um, my friend uh, Fred Gonzalez, he's the pastor at Calvary Chapel Hollister. I was with him uh, yesterday, and he has this shirt. It says, Old Guys Rule. And, uh, and you know, it's the, the old gate. And the old gate is important because all of the pathways come through this old gate. See, we're studying the book of Nehemiah. And the Bible, even at the, the most recent, you know, the book of Revelation, is still 2,000 years old. It's this old gate. The cross doesn't change. God's word doesn't change. And therefore, there are some principles, there are some things that those things, that old gate is the only path to rebuilding. We can't go around the old gate. We can't try to find a, a, new, you know, a new gate. It's this old gate. Now, I will say this. Contextually, methods change. Um, we use electric, I mean, we use jackhammers now. Instead of chisels, right? I mean, for a big job, you're not, tink. can you imagine that? You have this giant wall and you're, kunk. you know, you're just using these, these tools. And what are you doing? Oh, the old ways, you know, just got to hold on to the old ways. And then someone else goes, and they use a jackhammer and they get right through it. So methods change from time to time, but the principle behind those methods must be the same. So, for example, when it comes to um, being a civil engineer, my dad, um, he retired from the city of Los Angeles. Uh, he worked there for 37 years. So we were helping him clean out his house, trying to get rid of things. He has all of these books. He has all of these binders. And his favorite one is this big, fat book. It's called Weights and Measures. He doesn't, he doesn't do any civil engineering anymore at all. And so I was trying to like, help him to declutter. I'm like, Dad, do you, do you need this book? And he says, oh, Matt. And he takes out the book. He said, the, the, the weight-bearing load of wood or of concrete, those things never change. And he starts telling me these things, these um, principles, these formulas, they're the same today as they were then. That's the old gate. Now, along with that old gate, I want you to read with me in verse 16. Notice what it says, or in verse 12. Shalom, the son of um, Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. What does it say? He and his daughters made repairs. Isn't this cool? He had daughters that were just skilled. Man, when we went to Mexico on a missions trip, um, there were two girls that were with us that blew the guys away. Uh, one girl, her name is Amber. Her dad was a construction worker. So, man, she comes out there, and she has her work belt, her tool belt, and she's bam, bam. You know, she's, she's like using like the chalk line and she's doing all these things. Everyone's blown away. And she goes, yeah, my dad used to take me out and, and we used to build together. And I think that there's a good lesson here for us. Generation, generationally, it's not just the old gate, but it's also the old gate and teaching the young eagles to fly. And then vice versa. So on Wednesday night, when we have the youth worship team leading, that's not going to be an anomaly. That's going to be regular because I would love to see the youth worship team not just be the youth worship team, but they're just part of the worship team. And then they're integrated into that. So uh, Thanksgiving, um, we, we have this table that sometimes we, we call the adult table. And all the grown-ups are at that table. And it's like the nice dinnerware and stuff like that. And then we have a little kid's table. And it's like the plastic stuff. And, you know, it's, and, and imagine if 
at, at the adults' table, it stays that way forever. And the, the little kids' tables – and now you have like 60-year-olds that are at the little kids' table and you know 85-year-olds that are at the big kids' table. And, and they, they never get a chance to get to the big kids' table. It's so important to involve other people in ministry that are younger than us. I, I, I absolutely value the opinions and the experience of older people. I was, I was talking to Ken yesterday, and, and he was saying that when, uh, when he and Laura were, were new believers and they had gotten married, he said, I look back and we did not have a lot of older believers in our lives that were married couples. And he goes, looking back, that would have been really helpful. And he said, I'm really glad that when I look at the church, we have that mix. And it's so important that you understand that everybody has a part and everybody has a role. I was talking to one gentleman just recently about sharing his testimony at the men's Bible study. And he was kind of like, well, I'm not sure if I'd be willing to. And I said, you have so much to offer. You don't understand. You've been through so much in life. And man, when I'm around people that have been through more of life, I just, I glean from them. I try to listen to that. But I also want to share it's vice versa. When I'm around younger people, I listen to them as well. There's a lot of things that I could learn from, from them also. So what I see is um, Hollowhesh does a great job because he and his daughters are making repairs. Ministry knows no race or color or gender or age. It's, it's people working together. And then the next thing that they do is they repair what's broken. So much of the the rebuilding in the walls of Jerusalem is not building new things, but it's rebuilding things that are broken. Um, read with me what it says in verse 13. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it. They hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and they repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate or the dung gate. Now, I want you to see how far a thousand cubits is. Um, from my elbow to my middle finger, that would be a cubit. Now, I know that some people have a longer cubit, but that's how they measured cubit. A cubit was like about that distance. A thousand cubits, this group that is working on this part of the wall built a big chunk of the wall. I mean, they, they did a lion's share workload compared to most of the people. They did a thousand cubits of the wall, and they got all the way to the refuse gate. But then the ref, Malachi in verse 14, the son of Rechab, the leader of the district of Beth Hakarim repaired the refuse gate. Now his thing was just to build the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with bars um, and bolts. What does that remind us? It reminds us to repair what's broken. Out of the refuse gate, as we said last week, is the trash. It is dung. It is a waste. All of that is out of the refuse gate. And if you don't have a refuse gate... Um, in good working function, things are going to stink. Things are going to be unhealthy. When it comes to our lives, attitudes, man, if I have a bad attitude, I better get rid of it. There better be a way for me to lose that attitude. Otherwise, it's going to infect everyone around me. Um, conflicts, that's, that's, those are things that need to be dealt with. Laziness, sin. So those areas need to be areas that constantly, Lord, take those things out of my life. God, remove those things from me. God, examine my heart. God, purify me. God, cleanse me. God, change me. So they repaired what was broken. Um, notice what it says in verse 20. So these are Levites that are building. It says, after him, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, carefully repaired um, the other section 
from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. The word carefully means with care. The opposite is without care. Without care is reckless or apathetic. So in your building, in my building, in ministry, in doing what God's called me to do, am I reckless? Am I apathetic? Like, oh, you know, I know I should do that. I'll get to it tomorrow. You know, I know there's some um, people that don't know the Lord that, that will be lost for eternity. And you know, I'll talk to them later. You know, eventually I'll get around to it. See, that's without care. That's not caring. And when I'm not caring, I become apathetic. These people rebuilt with care. So let me ask you, with your personal devotion with the Lord, my personal devotion with the Lord, is it reckless? Is it apathetic? Is it when I have time, if that time comes? Or is it I'll make time because that's a priority in my life? When it comes to ministry, is it, well, if things happen to come my way and ministry's right in front of me, or do I say, God, show me who I could minister to today? Because I guarantee you, this is a prayer that God answers. If you say, Lord, today, show me someone to minister to, he will bring you in the pathway of someone that needs to be ministered to. And then, working from home. There's a reoccurring phrase, and, and you could, as you read through, uh, look at verse 22. After him, the priest, the men of the plain made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house or next to their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, Messiah um, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. And you're going to see this, uh, verse 28, by the horse gate, the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. Verse 29, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his house. And then it says at the end of verse 30, after him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. The word dwelling can be translated as room. Some people own a home and some people just have a room. And you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big your home is, how big your ministry is, how big your sphere of influence is. Whatever your sphere of influence is, whatever your ministry, whatever your home, whatever your room, God says, do it with care. Do it with zeal. Reach those people that you could reach. Do the best that you can. And then, as we close, and when we look at this, work from home, um, it's where ministry begins. It begins in the home. I realize that ministry begins, first of all, uh, with my wife. Ministry then is, is also with my kids. Before, it's ministering here. In fact, one of the qualifications that I see in the pastoral epistles is one who manages his own household well. I have to do that. Because if I don't, then what happens is there's this dichotomy that happens. And, and we have to live it at home. Now, you could ask any of my kids. I am, I'm a, a, a faulty um, sinner. <laughs> I'm just, I'm a sinner. They live with me, they see it. You could ask Deanna, I'm, I'm a sinner. But they should see something in my heart that is repentant. They should see something in my heart where the gap between what I say and what I do, you know, I'm working on closing that gap, that those things are happening within my life. And I want to encourage you because sometimes Satan can take us out from ministering to others because we feel like we're not perfect. Well, my wife and I, we get in arguments, so I can't minister to anyone. You know, I yell at my kids. I, I can't minister to anyone. I, any of those things, 
you know, those things happen. And, and it doesn't mean that we're to ignore them and like, well, everyone does that. I, I know that sometimes people can be that flippant about sin. Like, well, everyone, you know, has a bad temper. Everyone does this. Everyone does that. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that where there's gaps, where there's faults in my life, if, if your marriage, there's a gap there and you need to work on it. Maybe it's with the way that you're handling finances. Maybe it's the way that you're loving other people. Maybe it's ministry. Wherever there's a gap, Jesus is the repairer of the breach. I love the fact that God says, I'm looking for someone to stand in the gap. I'm looking for someone to build the wall. I'm looking for someone that's willing to, to lay down their life as the shepherd. And what does he do? He does it himself. See, God calls us to partner with him. That's called the great commission. That's why it's not called the great mission. Great mission is you go. Great commission is Jesus says, go and I'm with you now and forever. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you. It's a commission because God himself came down to breach, to, to repair the breach. The gap between God and people, the gap between me and God, the only way to bridge that gap is that Jesus is the gap filler. And then he calls us to partner with him and say, where are the gaps? Now you fill a gap. Now you go and you say, Lord, is there an area where you want me to fill? Is there some person that needs to be reached, some niche, some talent, something that you've created me for so that, God, I could be used in that way? Maybe you look around at your work and you think, well, I'm the only Christian there. Praise God. You know what you are? You're a gap filler. You look at your, your team. I'm the only Christian on the team. Praise God. You know what? You're a gap filler. There's too many times that as Christians, we could pull away and leave a gap. See, the bottom line is this. The bottom line is when it comes to gaps, you're, you're either a gap or you're a gap filler. Going back to that picture that we saw, the phalanx of the Greek, um, you know, the, the soldiers there, the Spartans, they're side by side. If one guy goes down, there's a gap. And how big does a gap have to be for the enemy to get in? Just a gap the size of one, one person, right? So this morning, when it comes to the body of Christ collectively, am I a gap or am I filling a gap? God used us to fill a gap. And this morning, we want to go into this time of communion, and uh, we want to respond to the message. What we're going to do is, as we consider Jesus, who has filled the gap, we're going to respond in a few ways. Uh, we're going to respond by singing. If you're new, why do we sing? You're thinking, man, these people love to sing, you know? Why do we sing? It's because God has created us in His image. God loved all the way in heaven. There's music. And I'm sure there's different types of music, but our singing is different. It's not just about the melody or the harmony. Our singing is because we're singing to the King of Kings, not because we want to sing this melody as much as it is it's the object of our worship that we're singing to and about. That's what praise and worship is. We're going to respond by surrender. If you've never received Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I'm going to pray a prayer and I'm going to ask you to pray that prayer by faith and opening up your heart and saying, Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, fill me. We're going to respond by giving. That's why we have an opportunity for tithes and offerings. That time of tithes and offerings is not a guilt thing. That's to participate as a commission of what God's doing, and it's a response in worship.
And then we are going to respond by receiving. Receiving communion. Receiving God's grace. Receiving God's love. Receiving the strength that we need. And so let's pray and let's, let's respond to this and realize that, yes, God calls us to partner with him and fill gaps, but ultimately Jesus is the repairer of the breach. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for initiating the relationship with us. That, God, it's not about us loving you first, but we love you because you first loved us. And, God, I want to thank you that it's not about us trying to build a a bridge to heaven. It's not about us trying to make our way by being good or doing good works. But, Jesus, you realize we could never build a bridge that far. God, we could never climb that high. So, Jesus, we thank you for coming and dying for our sins, the very sins that separate us from God. Lord, I pray this morning if there's anyone here that has never opened up their heart, their life to you to say, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And if you've never received Christ, then what that means is you're praying and you're saying, God, I receive this free gift. And would you pray with me, Jesus, come into my life. I receive that gift. Forgive me for my sins and fill me with your spirit. Thank you for paying that price for me and help me to walk with you. And I thank you that you'll never leave me or forsake me. Father, for those of us that have already entered into that relationship, we pray that you would bless this offering. Lord, as we give to you, um, Lord, may it be an act of worship, not out of guilt or compulsion, not because we could buy you off, but Lord, because we're simply responding to what you've already given to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we worship you, that it would be more than just music and more than just lyrics. But, Father, it would reflect what is happening in our hearts of worship towards you. Bless this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.